2: This is the American Greed Podcast, presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach. In this episode of American Greed, America is at war, and David Brooks is making millions. Brooks says his bulletproof vests save troops' lives.
3: But what Brooks really wants to save is money. You have to reduce the pay, you have to produce more. What's all this quality control crap?
2: And those bulletproof vests? They aren't all that bulletproof.
4: The vest failed and someone who was wearing it could have been
2: killed or severely wounded. But David Brooks doesn't look worried. He's got money to spend on parties, vacations, racehorses. And this Patriots way of honoring the red, white and blue? A $100,000 belt buckle made of rubies, diamonds, and
3: sapphires. He's a patriot, my ass.
2: November 26, 2005, a big night at the Rainbow Room in New York. The occasion, the bat mitzvah for 13-year-old Elizabeth Brooks. Her father is a businessman, David H. Brooks, the man in the pink suede suit. A live band is a good way to get a party going, but rarely has there been anything like this. Brooks hires Aerosmith, 50 cent... Tom Petty, the Eagles, and Kenny G. The party gets a fitting nickname, the Mitzvah Palooza, and is said to cost as much as $10 million. Later, as news of the event spreads, people are asking, who would spend that much money on a bat mitzvah? What is David Brooks trying to prove? Maybe that he is no longer the loser he was seen to be as a kid growing up in Brooklyn. David Brooks' father works in a garment factory and suffers from a crippling bone disease, causing him to be just under five feet tall. And some believe his father's illness has a big impact on David Brooks. All throughout his childhood, his family
5: was subject to tremendous ridicule because his father had this unfortunate
2: condition. Luke Brindle Kim, a former union researcher, now a private investigator, is researching a book about David Brooks.
5: So what happened with David is he developed a tremendous chip on his shoulder from just how pitiable his father was.
2: Eventually, the Brooks family moved to Long Island, and there, at the Roosevelt Raceway, Brooks is drawn to what will become a passion for him, harness racing. Steve Callis is a reporter for harnessracing.com. At the age of 14, he
6: went to Roosevelt, learned how to groom horses, became in love with uh,
2: horses and the horse business. Soon, he is picking winning horses at the track and learning to pick winning stocks on Wall Street. By 1986, he and his brother are running a stock brokerage business. And in almost no time, David Brooks is a millionaire. He was
5: incredibly smart. And everybody who has met him in any sort of business or professional capacity uh, says that he has a sort of singular intellect, that he's brilliant when it comes to numbers, when it comes to working out figures in his head.
2: But he also appears to play fast and loose with the law. In 1992, following allegations of insider trading, Brooks is fined and barred from the securities business for five years. And so he begins a holding company to invest in a variety of private businesses. David H. Brooks names it after himself, DHB. It is eventually listed on the American Stock Exchange. He sets up his office in his house in Old Westbury, Long Island and hires a former federal prosecutor as president,
1: Douglas Burns. The reality is it seemed like a fabulous opportunity because he was a very, very successful businessman. He had a beautiful estate. He had a Rolls Royce Corniche. He had a Bentley, multiple other luxury cars, Mercedes, Lincoln Continentals. Brooks
2: is successful and unusual. Burns realizes the job is not a good fit and lasts less than a year.
1: To me, business should be conducted in a somewhat formal atmosphere, you know, whether it's a boardroom, a conference room. This was a situation where David Brooks would have bills literally lined up on the top of his bed. Every invoice that needs to be paid, and he's got them laid out row by row on his bed.
2: But from his house, David Brooks is building a multi-million dollar business centered around a bankrupt body armor company he buys called Point Blank. He hires Jim McGee, a retired Marine Corps colonel, to run the company as its president.
3: Pretty soon we had 130-some-odd sewers, uh, had a full office step. We were, we were rocking and rolling. We were, we were a pretty good company.
2: Early on, McGee says he increases the pay scale for his sewers by a few cents an hour. And soon, a call comes in from New York.
3: Well, you can't do that. David's having a fit. You have to reduce the pay. You have to produce more. You have to do it with less. Cut back on your people. What's all this quality control crap?
2: For McGee, who wore body armor in combat, Point Blank offers an opportunity to save soldiers' lives. For Brooks, that appears irrelevant.
3: David's sole interest in life was money. He couldn't care if we were making uh, stuffed pandas, and as long as every day I was shipping $20,000 or more worth of pandas. He was solely interested in, what is my revenue today? He would just constantly, almost like on auto dial, be calling, McGee, please,
1: McGee, please, always asking for Jim McGee, and then just peppering him incessantly
3: with questions how are the sales today how are the sales this week how were the sales he literally called me two o'clock in the morning once at home and said uh, you spent six or five six or five a yard for decker and light blue decker and cotton I said yeah i used to spend 623 well all right quick and while
2: brooks is hounding him mcgee is about to deliver brooks the gold he is looking for a game-changing design for a bulletproof vest It is called the interceptor.
3: It was high on the side, so it covered exposure as you've got when your arms are up with a rifle. It had a plate pocket in the front and a plate pocket in the back to handle plates that would stop a rifle-fired bullet. This was a a really good vest, a huge step up.
2: And with this design, in 1998, McGee wins point-blank an $82 million contract to produce interceptor vests for the U.S. Marine Corps.
3: It is just a start. Billions are, are in play here. And Brooks had the monopoly on the design of the interceptor vest at point-blank.
2: As time goes on, McGee looks at the business accounts and comes across strange expenses.
3: I'm looking at my January billings, and I see that I'm spending $6,000 for Presidential Towers. I had no idea where that was. About five dollars or $6,000 for Gianni Versace. I'd never heard of him. And he certainly wasn't one of my sewers. And if he was, he's would sadly be the most expensive freaking sewer on the planet. Presidential Place.
2: That's the location of Brooks' oceanfront condo at the Boca Raton Beach Club, reportedly one of the most prestigious addresses in the area. And though the name is lost on the former Marine Corps colonel, Gianni Versace is a favored
1: designer of David Brooks. He was into what you would describe as, you know, very, very expensive garments. He'd say, this T-shirt's 1100 bucks. What do you think of it?
2: Over the years, McGee also sees something fishy with the inventory
3: reports. The unit numbers were wrong. So now I had not just charges that were completely unethical, if not illegal, that were obviously personal charges for personal benefit. I also had a fictitious inventory.
2: Whenever he confronts Brooks, Brooks tells him it's none of his business.
3: And I'm about over my head and shut up, it's none of your business. And I'm fed up. So I told him in unkind language to f*** himself and said, go to your fax machine, because I quit.
2: On September 11th, 2001, the world watches in horror as the World Trade Towers
3: collapse. And at that moment, David Brooks strikes gold. 9-11 changed everything. Not just for the country, but obviously for the Interceptor contract. It became a goldmine because the need was for all service members to have this. As the
2: country prepares for war in Afghanistan and Iraq, it is obvious that the demand for the Interceptor vests far exceeds the supply. And that means new contracts for point-blank body armor, which makes David Brooks' business a news story.
5: Here at Point Blank, these employees are piecing together the Interceptor. Point Blank is the sole manufacturer of the product for the military.
0: I feel very, very happy and proud as American that our troops are over there serving for us and they're carrying our our vests, our garments, so I feel very happy about that.
2: That's the story Point Blank wants told. But there are stories here at its Oakland Park factory that it wants to keep quiet. Scott Cooper is organizing director of Unite Here, Southern Region. There were stories of the owner, David Brooks,
5: who would come through the factory from time to time and just sort of on these tirades, workers being told that he would come up to them and saying, oh, you smell so bad, why don't you go home and take a bath?
3: He came in once where I had to escort him out of the plant. He screamed at me across the curb or cutter, fire all the noise. You know, I hadn't heard that word used, and I went to college in the South after 30 years. The people making Brooks' best are skilled workers.
2: Many are immigrants who put in long hours in a hot Florida factory with no windows and little air conditioning. We called the Point Blank
5: factory South Florida's most notorious sweatshop. It's a place where vermin ran around, where The water cooler couldn't be used because one day workers opened it up and they found roaches in it.
2: It's a place where
3: profits appear to be all that matters. People were subhuman to David Brooks. He didn't care that they had lives and families and expectations and and aspirations. They were just something he could use. But it's time for a change. And in July
2: 2002, factory workers decide to launch a campaign to join Unite, the textile workers' union. And that means that his own employees are going to take on the rich and powerful David Brooks. And on July 18th, several step up to give notice to Brooks' managers of the interest in joining a union. Harris Rayner is the Southern Regional Director for Workers' United.
6: Many employees began to chant something that was very popular at that particular time. In Spanish, si se puede, which means yes, we can. Nobody got physical, nobody did anything other than than talk like this.
2: But David Brooks will not tolerate such an affront. Almost immediately, everyone is ordered out of the building. The company's response was to call the police to intimidate the workers. Point Blank is a news story again.
1: No air condition. People working hard. We had sometimes no water for for drinking. Money.
2: Money. His workers are fired up, but David Brooks is determined to win this fight. He fires three union supporters. The reason companies do this is for purely for intimidation.
6: If so you get the leaders and you get the people who are speaking up, then you scare everybody
2: else. But Brooks' scare tactics fail, and a strike is on. Every day for six months, there
7: were 100 to 150 people showing up for picket line duty.
2: Brooks threatens to close the plant, slaps the union with a lawsuit, and hires replacement workers. He will not negotiate. Instead, he goes shopping. In August, he takes off for his annual spree to Los Angeles and Las Vegas, spending $40,000 in just five days. As he strolls through Prada and Gucci, the plight of immigrant workers may be the last thing on David Brooks' mind. His shopping trip reflects his arrogance, but it will come back to bite him. At the union's New York headquarters, researchers are digging deep into his finances, finding information that will be the beginning of Brooks' end. We had reams of material to look through
5: in the forms of annual reports, quarterly reports, proxy statements. And we started to notice some things that struck us as odd.
2: For example, Point Blank is renting its factory building. Paying more than $9 a square foot. That's double the going rate. And highly unusual, given Brooks' history of browbeating Colonel McGee over every cent. And who is the property owner getting this inflated price? Carrie Brooks, David's wife. And then they come upon a check.
5: At the top left of the check, it had the words
2: Tactical Armor Products. It is signed by none other than Terry Brooks. And the question is, what is Tactical Armor Products? It's a small company in Tennessee. The company supplies the ceramic plates that go inside the interceptor vests. Entirely controlled by David Brooks, its only customer is DHB. And by charging DHB inflated costs for the plates, Brooks turns millions of dollars that should go to shareholders into money that goes to David Brooks. Sam Rudman is an investor's attorney at Robbins, Geller, Rudman & Dow. Instead of having a competitive
7: process or going out and looking for other people to buy plates from, this was really just another way to siphon money off the top of the company into Brooks' pocket. This is rank fraud. This is what people who commit fraud do, and when they're making a lot of money, they look for lots of other ways to skim money off the top.
2: Brooks has not reported his relationship with tactical armor products to the SEC, and so the union does it for him. And that proved to be, I
5: believe, the decisive blow in the union campaign.
2: Already, the National Labor Relations Board has ordered Brooks to rehire striking workers and pay them their back pay. And now in March 2004, in response to Unite Discoveries, the SEC issues a formal order of investigation into David Brooks and DHB. Soon after, Brooks is ready to settle with the union and sign a contract. The timing makes me think that that was the decisive
5: factor that said to him, you know what? These guys beat me, enough is enough. We need to settle and move on.
2: After the contract is signed, Brooks makes a call to Union Headquarters. It was just a string
6: of invective, four-letter words, and at some point I said, David, you know, I'm not going to continue this conversation if you're going to continue yelling at me and cursing at me like I'm a child. That's not happening. And then he said a few more four-letter words, and I told him that he should have a very nice day, and I hung up. It's the last time I talked to David Brooks.
2: In the spring of 2004, David Brooks can turn on the evening news inside his luxurious oceanfront condo and hear what, for him, is very good news.
0: More violence in Iraq, where two U.S. soldiers were killed in a rocket attack this morning.
2: The two wars America is fighting are costly. The American death toll in Iraq will surely rise. Later, Brooks issues a press release saying Given the continuing war on terror, the future outlook for DHB appears outstanding. And his number one product, the interceptor vest, keeps getting excellent press.
3: Uh, we were on patrol one day. Uh, I stepped out of my home view. I was talking to my platoon sergeant, and I turned and I actually was shot with a sniper. Uh, shot right in, my, uh, right in my body armor. That saved my life.
7: So when people say, boy, they wear that body armor and it's hot, you say, forget the heat. These things save your lives.
3: Yes, sir. Yes, sir.
2: But workers inside the Point Blank factory have submitted written statements to the union saying quality control is a low priority. One writes, the Kevlar protective fabric was not cut to fit into the shoulders. This leaves the shoulders exposed to bullets getting through the vest. Plates are supposed to have 30 layers of Kevlar. Many times, they cut leftover material with less protection and fewer plies. The reason for the shortcuts, another worker later charges, is to cut costs, speed delivery, and facilitate payment. But Point Blank continues to get work from the U.S. military. One contract announced in June is worth $239 million.
1: It's the biggest contract ever in the history of body armor. It's going to protect...
2: Sandra Hatfield is David Brooks' chief operating
1: officer. How good, in your estimation, is this protection?
0: Well, I think uh, the facts right now are it's certainly the best that's ever been developed, uh, and it exceeded uh, the expectations of what the military was looking for.
2: But there's information to suggest that is not true.
4: In 2003, testers with the Army and the Marine Corps notice that some of the vests are starting to fail. The bullets are actually penetrating the vest and going through.
2: Christian Lowe, at the time a reporter for the Marine Times, is contacted by an Army insider who wants to sound an alarm about David Brooks' quality control.
4: As you can see
2: in this test report, in in
4: one of the test shots, shot number three, uh, the pistol round went completely through the right front panel. Okay, And what that means practically is the vest failed and someone who was wearing it could have been killed or severely wounded.
2: In July 2004, Army engineers issue a memo charging that Point Blank is not compliant with its multi-million dollar contract. Point Blank kept saying,
4: it's your problem, not ours. They kept saying that it's your testing is wrong. Um, They kept saying ours is fine, everything's fine here. Um, It's you that has the
2: problem. Army engineers disagree, and the testers reject the vests. And so what does David Brooks do? Instead of meeting the obligations of his contract, he asks that the soldiers wear the vests. This is an example
4: of what's called a request for deviation. So basically what they're trying to do here is they have a standard, they couldn't make the standard, and they're asking the government to
2: lower the standard. As the Iraq war escalates through the summer, the US death toll is inching toward 1,000. And the Marine Corps has to answer the question, is a faulty vest better than no vest? They believe the answer is yes. And so they institute a waiver system that allows nearly 10,000 rejected vests into the field. The
4: waivers say we recognize that the testers are concerned about the protective capability of these vests, but in balancing those concerns and the needs of the troops in the field, we're going to go ahead and field them anyway.
2: Months later, Just days before Lowe publishes a story on the subject for the Marine Times, the Marine Corps takes action.
0: The Marine Corps has recalled body armor given to more than 5,000 Marines in Iraq.
4: They issue what's called a Marine Corps-wide message, and it's sent out to everywhere, all over the field. And they wrote out the specific lot numbers uh, of the vests that were not up to snuff and told commanders to pull those vests off Marines in the field and replacements would be issued for them.
2: But by now, it's likely serial numbers have faded and worn off, and many of those facing combat will not know if they are wearing a vest that failed. And people who know what is going on blame David Brooks and his constant cost-cutting for the risk that these soldiers are facing.
3: He didn't see troops as somebody that this company had an obligation to protect, and that these products would be the fulfillment of that obligation. He never did get that.
2: 30-some years ago, a young David Brooks fell in love with harness racing. And over the years, that love has turned into a multi-million dollar business. The entities involved in the Brooks
6: family They own somewhere, the, the estimates were between 800 and 950 horses, and in the sport of harness racing, that is virtually unheard of. He became the biggest owner in the sport, eventually.
2: In September 2004, in Ohio, at the Little Brown Jug, the Kentucky Derby of Harness Racing, he has one horse that comes in second, and another that wins the race. When you win the little brown jug,
6: generally speaking, you're a big guy. When you're one-two in the little brown jug, you're the king of the world.
2: As Brooks stands in the winner's circle, it's easy to see him as a hugely successful man who has it all. But stories around the racetrack are that David Brooks is not trusted or liked. He is feared.
4: Well... David Brooks is a very scary fellow.
2: One colleague in the business speaks only if his identity is kept secret.
4: When David says, I'm not paying you, don't call me anymore, he meant it. And if you did call him again to get money that he owed you, he would send some visitors over to have a discussion with you.
2: And no one likes to see David Brooks when he is angry. This Boca Raton Police report from April 2002 describes a scene at Brooks Beach Club. Two juveniles accuse Brooks of battery. The report says Brooks pushed one in the chest and spit in the face of the other, and then picked up a table as if to throw it at them. He screams, get the f- out of here. He says if the kids bother him again, he will kill them. And there are many stories like that.
3: I think people were scared of him, felt threatened by him. And when I had my differences with him, I felt threatened. Not that he threatened me, but that he had a reputation. Despite
2: that reputation, what draws people to Brooks is his money.
6: Some harness horse trainers were flown down to Florida for year-end parties and they were
2: given bonus checks. In that winner's circle photograph, look closely at his belt buckle. It's made of diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and it cost $101,000, presumably a symbol of his patriotism. But it is a symbol of his greed, because David Brooks did not pay for that belt buckle. He does not pay for the bonus he gives his trainer. Those expenses are paid by DHB Industries, like so many things. $25,000 a month rent on the Florida condo. Brooks owns that condo, and so he is charging the company rent that he pays to himself. $16,000 to the photographer hired for his son's bar mitzvah. The company pays for summer camp costs for the kids, even cosmetic surgery for Terry Brooks. And it pays more than $1 million for Brooks family vacations to Italy, St. Bart's, and Cannes. In all, DHB pays more than $6 million in personal expenses for David Brooks. We need to understand that when
7: you have a public company, the money is that of the shareholders. You no longer own the company because you have shareholders that you have a fiduciary responsibility to.
2: When federal investigators raise questions, Brooks shows agreements between him and DHB that defend his expenses. One is an agreement from 1996, signed by former DHB President Douglas Burns. Later, when asked by the feds, Burns says he knows nothing
1: about it. The document was a joke, okay? Just flat out a joke. The thing said buisness four times instead of business. Okay. And I am a wordsmith and a spelling guy, and I also use spellcheck. And the signature, by the way, was my signature, but it was photocopied and cropped into the document.
2: What investigators see as fraud, Brooks sees as taking what's his. After all, he created DHB, and he controls it entirely. And often from that position comes an irresistible sense of entitlement.
3: He did work hard, he did spend enormous numbers of hours doing it, but he couldn't get beyond almost what I would call a sickness of thinking that everything belongs to me.
2: David Brooks seems to be giving his investors an early present. He announces a new two-year contract with the U.S. Army and a $100 million order for the Interceptor vest.
7: Through 2004, there's a steady drumbeat of positive news and contract signing after contract signing. And the contracts are getting bigger and bigger. So if you're an investor, you're thinking, this is a smaller company, that's growing, there's a lot of room to grow. This is exactly what Brooks and the other executives at the company were telling people.
2: And those good reports send DHB stock soaring. In March, it sells at $5.46 a share. Now in December, DHB stock is at twenty-two seventy, dollars an increase of 316%. And that looks like a perfect setup for a pump and dump scheme.
7: Whenever there's a pump, it's the pumping up of the stock eventually has to come to dump, the sale of the shares. The question for the bad guys always is, when's the right time to do that?
2: Brooks decides the time is now. At the end of 2004, he unloads more than nine million shares of DHB stock in just over 30 days and takes in a staggering $186 million.
7: For a small little company like
2: that, that's a tremendous amount of money. That's
7: big, big dollars. You I mean, that is... It was shocking at the time. Um, it was shocking to the market at the time. Just an, an incredible, incredible dump.
2: As the public learns that insiders are selling, DHB stock starts to fall. From $22 to $14. But still, no one knows another secret Brooks has. At those financial statements showing a great profit margin year after year, they were lies. Because for years, David Brooks has been fudging his numbers. He's been fabricating his inventory figures to make DHB look more profitable than it really is.
7: In any securities fraud like this, there's usually some accounting component to it. So here, it wasn't on the revenue side, it was on the inventory side.
2: In early 2005, Brooks' lies begin to unravel when his controller raises questions about inaccuracies in the inventory reports. Brooks is outraged. Later, the controller testifies in court saying, Brooks takes a water bottle and he slings it. He states, the water just splashes me, drenches my computer and everything. And then he goes into a tirade calling me a snake. He grabs pictures and throws them. He makes a hole in the wall. And into this mess of lies steps Nicole Manorino, an independent auditor hired to audit a year-end financial statement for DHB. The first thing she learns is to watch out for David Brooks.
0: Oftentimes, I would hear him screaming at someone, whether on the phone or, or in the office.
2: As she completes her audit, the question for Manorino is, what is inside this point-blank warehouse in Pompano Beach?
0: Myself and other members of the audit team went to the warehouse, watched their employees count the goods, and we also followed behind them and counted items.
2: Later, she sees something wrong with their numbers.
0: In that listing, there were $9 million worth of finished vests. I did not remember seeing those finished vests when I was at the inventory observation.
2: That's around 63,000 vests. They would be hard to miss. And she asks Brooks, where are they?
0: We were told by David Brooks that they were moved, shipped to another location, and they were destroyed in a hurricane. So we requested shipping documents because to ship that many vests, 63,000, you would need to have records or use some kind of freight line. They could not produce that.
2: Brooks doesn't like to be questioned, and soon the threats begin. One target is an attorney assisting Manorino, who challenges Brooks directly.
0: I overheard David Brooks tell his co-worker that he'd like to shoot that mother
2: It's no wonder. Nicole Manorino's discovery is a blow to David Brooks. With a report of suspected fraud, the federal investigation, which now includes the U.S. Attorney's Office, steps into high gear.
0: The fraud that I had personally discovered affects their books by about $9 million. Ultimately, they had been um, cooking the books for years, in excess of twenty and thirty million dollars per year. VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
3: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact.
2: By November 2005, David Brooks has personally made tens of millions of dollars from his bulletproof vest business in just four years. And when you make that much money in such a short amount of time, why not spend 10 million of it on your daughter's bat mitzvah? It is held in the Rainbow Room in New York.
4: That was the greatest party I've ever been invited to and will ever go to. The food, whatever you wanted, shrimp, lobster, uh, steak, the drinks were flowing.
2: But the biggest expense by far is the entertainment. Aerosmith, 50 Cent, Tom Petty, The Eagles, and Kenny G. And at center stage is David Brooks the man who stepped out of the streets of Brooklyn and into a pot of gold.
5: If you plot the dollar value of how much he's been taking from the company, over time, the numbers get larger and larger and larger. And I think that is sort of a a nice little measurement of how the outrageousness got more and more outrageous as time passed.
2: Several months after the party, being outrageous finally catches up with David Brooks, In August 2006, DHB's board admits that its previous financial statements are inaccurate. Brooks is forced out of his own company, and point-blank body armor is bought by a new owner. That month, when his two closest assistants are indicted on charges of fraud, he takes off.
5: He boxes up a lot of his things, and his artwork, and his jewelry, and his watches, and his pens, and has it all shipped to London. He rents a pretty lavish place, the monthly rent was something along the lines of
2: $125,000. But the dream of a new life in a new country is short-lived. A year later, Brooks is indicted on charges of insider trading, fraud, obstruction of justice, and tax evasion. you
1: have anything to say?
2: He is allowed home confinement in his Manhattan apartment until the government learns he is hiding millions overseas and he's thrown in jail. In January 2010, his trial begins in Islip, New York. The prosecution opens its case by handing the jury the infamous belt buckle. You could almost see
6: them thinking, oh my goodness, this guy had a belt buckle that cost 100000 and you know, these people are regular people, 100000 to them might be two or three years' salary. So I thought that was a devastating piece of evidence on the first day of trial that really put the defense in a hole from the beginning.
2: More than 70 witnesses are called to testify. One for the prosecution is Douglas Burns.
1: I didn't want to hurt him, um, but the reality is they put me in an untenable box. I mean, they claimed that I created a document, which I didn't.
2: After his testimony, Burns is left with the same question many are asking.
1: And you have a guy who's already worth tens of millions of dollars, very successful, two lavish homes, a nice family. Why would he do things wrong? His attorneys
2: repeatedly point to Brooke's poor mental health. At one point, they argue, his problems are the result of early adversity, including his father's disfiguring condition. His trial lasts eight months. In September 2010, Brooks is convicted on 14 counts of conspiracy, mail, wire and securities fraud and obstruction of justice. A year later, he also pleads guilty to filing false tax returns. At his sentencing hearing, he apologizes to his family and to the judge who is about to sentence him.
5: There was no apology to the investors who were victimized, to the hundreds of employees who were proud to make bulletproof vests. There was no apology to any of the families of the military men, no apologies to the taxpayer. It was, Your Honor, I'm really sorry that I'm in this situation.
2: The judge sentences Brooks to 17 years in prison. And in her statement, she raises the issue that matters most to many in this story. From the business that the war created for him, Brooks made millions and millions of dollars. And yet, he chose not to spend the money improving ways to save soldiers' lives. Instead, he spent it on himself.
3: We know what the life of a troop is worth. And to to save a couple bucks, you know, on a fabric price, to risk a life and allow that to happen, Uh, That's that's beyond callous. That's culpability beyond any rational defense. If you would interview him in prison, I'm sure he'd say, screw him, I was there for the money.
2: In 2016, David Brooks died at the age of 61 while serving his sentence. Thanks for listening to the American Read Podcast presented by CNBC. I'm Stacy Keach.